0: Reading from chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Then he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, let me three loaves? For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our Father in heaven, I do desire to revere you and have all your people honor you today. I pray that your will would be done this morning, that through my teaching of your truth, your people would be brought into closer fellowship with you moment by moment, day by day. May you be our all in all, the greatest gift we could ever ask for or receive. And please bless our time together to your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as many of you know, uh, prior to moving to Omaha in 2005, I was living in western Washington on a little island out in the Puget Sound where I had my bread baking business. Prior to that, for four years, I lived uh, in a different spot in Washington further inland up into the mountains where I was working on a farm. I was a berry farm with raspberries and blueberries. And one of my jobs, uh, my second year and beyond as I was assistant manager, involved a number of cultivation tasks that required me to go up and down and up and down on a tractor, these rows of berries. And at one end of the field, as I was looking down to the east, was this beautiful mountain on the skyline, El Dorado Peak, which is upper left on your outlines so I always enjoyed heading east, got to see that peak, which I had climbed uh, my first summer uh, in the valley, so I could look back up to where I had been on that beautiful uh, summer day. But heading the other direction, when I was headed west down the roads, was a little country church, a little Episcopal church. And I always thought how peaceful and calm it looked there at the end of the pasture, tucked in the trees. Of course, it's big windows looking back at me and further east to that beautiful mountain. Well, I'd been there for four years, and it wasn't until the last uh, spring, actually that winter, that God really started working in my heart. I wasn't a Christian when I started working there. I wasn't a Christian all through college. This was in my late 20s. And uh, that spring, though, after that winter that God had been uh, working in me, I thought, you know, I'm going to go to church on Easter, and I'll just go walk right down the end of the pasture there to that little country church. And uh, I knew from driving up and down that highway what time the service was, because there was a sign out on the road, so at the right time. I walked down uh, to the end of that pasture, and lo and behold, there was nobody there. And I was thinking, what did I do? My watch wrong? Daylight savings time? Who knows what it might be? Well, it turned out there was a sign tacked on the door. It said Easter Sunrise Service, 7 a.m. So I had missed the boat. Obviously, I I didn't know how that worked on uh, Easter so often. But being a country church, uh, the door was unlocked, and so I could let myself in. And I thought, well, I'll just really want to read a Bible and stare out that window at the beautiful mountain. So I went on inside and sat down, and I couldn't find a Bible. I'm thinking, what kind of church is this? And uh, well, I think God was certainly laying all these things together for it uh, not to be a sermon, not to be a fellowship that he wanted me to engage in that day, but have nothing else but him and me uh, for me to pray and engage with him that day. And it was that fall, actually, I'm sorry, December, that coming winter when I actually got saved. So it was in the span of those months. And so I tell you this story because that spring day, that Easter, marked a pivotal day in my spiritual journey, which ultimately led to me being here in front of you, opening the scriptures with you. And um, it was all focused around prayer that day, that God used the vehicle of prayer uh, to start uh, that journey in me. And my aim in our time together is to present to you a big picture of prayer. This is not going to be a handbook. People have written 100-page books on methods of prayer but to use the big picture from looking at some of the details in this passage, a classic passage on Jesus' teaching of prayer, that in the end we all might be stirred to pray more rightly, more frequently, and more fervently. Our text here in chapter 11 uh, begins with the disciples asking a question of Jesus. Notice, though, this is not a random question. I think there's a very good reason why they ask this question, and that's because Jesus has just been praying. And uh, I think they saw him pray. I imagine the scene being that he went off maybe he was slightly by himself. And they are watching him, saying, OK, what's this going on? And when he comes back over, they say, hey, could you teach us how to pray? And indeed, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. They know that John has been praying. They know that John has been teaching his disciples how to pray. And they want the same from their leader. Uh, Jesus found it very important to be in prayer. So he was role modeling this all the time. They knew that it was part and parcel of his ministry And Hence, it's very logical that they would want to be strengthened for the same type of ministry. Uh, It's no wonder that the disciples were curious. They had seen him many times in prayer. So uh, then it leads to ask us, where is it okay to pray? So if we look at the first word there, it's okay to pray in public and private. And we see this from verse 1 where it says, As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So they saw him praying. He wasn't off by himself, totally secluded on this occasion. Um, and he, they saw him pray and asked for instruction. On other occasions, though, uh, he does uh, pray privately and encourages people to do so. A uh, famous passage in Mark, or Matthew chapter 6, which is Matthew's teaching on the Lord's Prayer, really emphasizes this solo quiet time prayer. And if we look at the context of that, Matthew mentions several things, several Christian disciplines you're supposed to do in private, giving, fasting, and prayer. So it's no surprise there that Matthew would emphasize Jesus' words about prayer being private because he's talking about everything else being private too. But we shouldn't take this as a statement that you can only... Pray privately as if that's the only venue is to go into your closet, close the door behind you and pray. Otherwise, Jesus himself would have contradicted this. He prayed in front of his disciples at the Lord's Supper. He prayed very publicly, boldly, and on purpose for the resurrection of Lazarus. If you recall, he says explicitly, God, I'm saying this to you so they can hear me and then you can do it and then they'll all know that you heard me. So obviously, uh, public prayer is okay. Uh, Jesus did it, but there is a specific um, situation in which... Uh, private prayer is best called for. Uh, and there's multiple examples. I listed verses there in your outline of uh, saints in the Old Testament praying publicly. So don't let anybody tell you. I saw several spots on the Internet, and there's some books out there that say, oh, you're only supposed to uh, pray privately. Or many uh, young Christians or people questioning faith faces. Oh, what's this contradiction here? Jesus says, go in your closet and pray, and yet he himself prays publicly. So I think it's an easy way to resolve that just by looking at the context of Matthew 6 and then looking at the example of all these public or semi-public prayers. But whether we're praying publicly or privately, I think there's a challenge to each setting. And uh, when we look for which is appropriate at which time, we need to look at those dangers and uh, how we can respond to them. Uh, Praying publicly, there is the danger of pride or, or even false humility. We can get distracted from what our real job is, talking to God and start thinking about what people around us are thinking or seeing or, or needing, and we uh, are diverted from our true purpose. And I think this is the situation that uh, Matthew uh, uh, records Jesus speaking to in Matthew 6. He doesn't want people uh, making a big deal of fasting, making a big show, getting all this praise from men. You're supposed to fast quietly. He doesn't want people making a big show of their prayers long and long and long and going on and on. He wants people to be praying uh, privately, So uh, in each of those situations, Jesus is rebuking the showiness, the heart issue uh, that is behind uh, the, the lengthy and the ill-advised public prayers. And one other good example is also from Luke in chapter 18. You remember the story of the, uh, the man who comes to the temple and says, oh, at least I'm not like that bad tax collector over there. You know, I give all this and I'm such a good person. And his prayer is rebuked for being totally condescending and arrogant. But it was the condescending and, and arrogance, arrogancy of his prayer that was condemned, not the publicness of it, because the man who was praised, the tax collector, who very boldly and loudly says, you know, beating his chest, woe is me, and um, you know, please, God, forgive me, a sinner, uh, he was not praying quietly. He said that vocally. So if his prayer, which is vocal, can be praised, uh, the thing that's being praised is the heart issue behind it his contrition and he went away justified whereas the man who was just as vocal uh, but was being prideful he was rebuked so the great example there in luke 18 of the proper heart issue that lies behind an ill-advised uh, public prayer but i mean that uh, private prayer is is a done deal perfect no dangers in it because there's some interesting examples we see of uh of the dangers inherent in praying privately, and that's, I think, a good example is in Luke 22, the situation of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus uh, leaves his disciples, says, pray, I'm going to go off a little ways, a little distance, and pray himself. Well, what happened to those disciples? They fell asleep, right? I imagine an example with us, the alarm clock goes off, and you say, oh, I'm just going to stay in bed another 15 minutes, I can pray here, I don't need to get up and uh, go to the den or the couch, the, the uh, kitchen table, and pray, I'll just stay here. Well, what happens? We fall asleep, Right? So, there are dangers to praying by ourselves, a laziness perhaps being one of them, or a wandering mind. So, there can be very good reasons to have somebody around us for accountability, which is what a semi uh, private or a public prayer can do. So, I challenge you to look at the motives and the reasons behind why we have or you have uh, success or, or failure in our public and private prayers. Uh, if we're failing at our public prayers, is it because of uh, pride that leads to shyness? or a lack of practice. Uh, so that's another form of laziness that can lead to poor public prayers. If we're having failure in our private prayers, is it because uh, we are being lazy also? or not having self-discipline. So those uh, errors can cut either way. And uh, either direction, we really need the Spirit's empowerment. And we'll get to that at the very end. It's the Spirit that fills us with so many gifts that we need to pray properly, whether it be in public or in private. Well, moving on, notice that Jesus does not answer the question, if you pray. He answers it when you pray. He knows that prayer is going to happen. He knows that they're going to be praying throughout their ministry. They better be, otherwise they're not going to have success. So he answers when you pray and gives that model prayer. And uh, I see two reasons why we should be having prayer as a focal part, a key Christian discipline, a focus of our lives. The first is merely that we're commanded. It's an act of obedience. It's not like we can just say, I'm not going to listen to God on that one. Uh, I'm going to do my own thing. But that God has commanded it. Uh, Paul says that we must pray in order to alleviate our worries and our anxieties. Jesus says we must pray to avoid temptation. So to not do so, to try and avoid those things or solve those problems by some other avenue is to put ourselves in the place of God. And that obviously is not a God-honoring approach. So uh, prayer is commanded as a vehicle by which we can take care of these things. Uh, The second is that it's assumed as a result of our salvation. If a person is not praying, it's a good reason to question whether they really are a son of God, because a son of God does pray. Uh, We pray not because we're supposed to, but because we want to. Uh, Prior to being saved, when I was living on that farm for those first three years, no surprise that I didn't pray very much because I didn't have that yearning uh, to talk to God. Uh, He had not restored a relationship with me. God was angry with me. Uh, Scripture says he uh, does not listen to the prayers of the wicked. I was a very wicked person back then, so it's no surprise that I didn't pray. But once we are saved, that relationship is restored, and we have this yearning, this desire, just as Jesus desire to speak to his father and do nothing but his father will, father's will, that should be the exact same expression of our hearts that we have. So again, this is an opportunity for us to examine why don't we have that desire to pray? Is it because um, we have some unresolved sin, you know, a life full of sin, uh, unjustified sin is the situation of an unsafe person? And As I said, God does not listen to that wicked person. So repentance needs to follow and a restored uh, relationship with God follows that. For a person who already is a son of God, uh, God says that uh, sin can um, uh, cut off that communication between the father and his children. So if we have some unresolved sin, God must be or might be uh, resisting us, and we need to resolve that. So either way, if we're having a lack of desire to pray to God, we need to resolve that through confession, uh, knowing that he is faithful to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and move on to that expression of our thankfulness for all that he has done. The next point there is uh, how frequently we are to pray. And the quick answer is always. Uh, Verses 5 to 9 shows us uh, this story of comparing God the Father to this neighbor. Thankfully, uh, God the Father does not sleep. We're not stirring him from his bed when we go to him at midnight. We can go to him always. So we should always be praying along the lines of 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Familiar (laughs) verse, pray without ceasing. And Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. So always, uh, you know, we're supposed to walk around always muttering prayers like some monk who's just repeating the same thing over and over again. I don't think that's what this intends. It's Rather, it's a a lifestyle of prayer. Uh, Just what we do when something comes up, when we think of something, it's an expression of prayer. Well, narrowing it a bit because we, we do need parameters and we do need some guidelines, and I think those are available for us in Scripture. We see, example, um, for example, David in Psalm 5 uh, prays specifically in the morning. Elsewhere, it's in Psalm uh, 55, and then Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, speaks of praying morning, noon, and night. So I don't think those are hard and fast rules. It's a good framework for us to adopt. Uh, maybe that's where the praying at each meal, if we're eating three times a day, came about. But don't use that as oh. I'm done. I'm good. God loves me. If I just pray morning, noon, and night, uh, check that off the list. As if the Muslim does that by praying five times a day, and they're better because we only pray three. But uh, that should be a lifestyle of prayer, and however often that comes up, it's frequency that's the issue, not a schedule, but the frequency. And one consequence of praying frequently is that it becomes a natural part of the day, and we we don't use it like magic. Uh, The magician, when he's got a problem, he runs over to the little kit and rubs the genie bottle and gets his answer that he wants. That's not the way it is when prayer is just an aspect of our lifestyle. The quote I have here from a pastor of the 18th century, and he put it this way, as long as we can fuss and work and rush about, so long as we can lend a hand, we have some hope. But if we have to fall back upon God, ah, then things must be critical indeed. So it's good for us to remember, do we only go to God when we've got some emergency We really get me out of this mess I've gotten myself into or that the world has gotten me into? Uh, Instead, it should be at the beginning, we go to God for the source of our plans and trust him for how they follow. We go to him when things are good, when things are bad, whatever it may be. He's not the genie in the bottle. He doesn't just grant our requests when we go through a specific motion. So um, he should be the source and the beginning of our planning and our comfort. And that's because God is near. We can access him at every time. We don't have to go to a specific place at a specific time, kneel in a particular way on a a mat or whatever it might be. God is near to his people, and we can draw near to him through Christ our Lord, as it says in Hebrews. Uh, Certainly, of course, we should turn to God when things turn ugly. There's there's no other uh, person to turn to, to help us in times of trouble. And God does promise to meet us there. So I'm not saying that uh, to avoid the error of only going to him in times of trouble. We should not go to him in times of trouble. Let me read to you from Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's very simple and a beautiful promise. Similarly, in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus that is huge and that is vast and a promise that God makes that he will keep so we don't need to wait till it becomes an emergency we can go to him at any time well a final aspect of the win if we're to do it always we're to doing it as a, a life uh, habit uh, just a way we go about our day to day life Uh, involves perseverance. Uh, The passage here in Luke, that latter part, speaks of the supplicator who goes to his neighbor and says, I really need something. And it's not even his own needs. It's to provide for a guest. Uh, Also, the well-known parable of the persistent widow, uh, the beginning of Luke chapter 18, uh, the judge ultimately gives in to her request because he doesn't want her to keep pestering him. Um, So here is the issue of men always ought to be praying. And God, being much greater than evil men, is faithful to grant those requests. So uh, the unjust judge, uh, he gave in because he just didn't want to be bothered. God gives in, as it were, because he delights in granting our requests. These are all things he has. He gives freely, and uh, we receive them with great joy. So uh, these two examples here in Scripture speak of human beings uh, heeding these requests when pestered. How much more so will God the Father do so? Well, it's in verse 2, the second part, that we have our object of prayer, where it says, Our Father in Heaven. Um, Today, public prayer, you know, baseball games and public gatherings is a big controversy here at schools. Can we pray in public there? And it's boiled down to this kind of nebulous, well, certainly a non-Jesus prayer. You're not allowed to mention the name of Jesus. So God becomes this nebulous, kind of all the attributes, they work for everybody. It's the the same God, doesn't matter. Well, um, Paul, you know, wandering through Athens, saw these monuments to hundreds, perhaps thousands of different gods, even one they didn't know the name of. Well, we know the name of God. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to uh, just go with the bare minimum in order to go by, uh, get by. But scripture reveals his name, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, as it is um, in the Hebrew letters, assuming some vowels there, um, and in verse 2 here, as it's called, Our Father in Heaven. Um, And in the New Testament revelation, of course, we have a clearer picture of of who Yahweh is, uh, that Jesus is Yahweh. And i let you look up for yourselves all those uh, scriptures that show uh, Old Testament passages, clearly speaking of Yahweh, being ascribed to Jesus. You can prove that for yourself. Uh, dismiss any Jehovah's Witness or Mormon that comes to your door uh, because uh, they separate the Yahweh and Jesus. They're clearly the same. And throughout the Old Testament, as I put there in your outline, all those examples, it shouldn't need to be proved that in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God prayed to Yahweh. That's assumed um, so it is Yahweh that we, we pray to and, uh, Yahweh is the father. Yahweh is Jesus and, um, Christ models that for us here. And in the new Testament, it is modeled for us by Paul and Peter and other people also. So I conclude that when we, we pray to the father, we're praying to Yahweh. When we pray to Jesus, we are praying to Yahweh. There is no confusion there. And, uh, we should always be focusing on Yahweh and, uh, the person of God as manifested in the scriptures. Well, given that we pray in uh, all types of venues, publicly, privately, we pray at all different times, we pray um, to uh, God only, uh, to no one else under heaven, Uh, the question then comes, uh, what or who are we supposed to pray for? What do we fill all this prayer time with? And uh, our prayer list can and should be quite broad. Uh, There's no way to narrow it down, oh, just pray for this or that, Um, and it can be uh, quite lengthy. Um, Paul uh, speaks of it so broadly. He says to pray for all of the saints and uh, you know, people we don't know names of. I don't know if there he was speaking of all the saints that he knew in Ephesus um, or all the saints that he addressed in other letters or whether all means all in terms of all of God's people around the world. But certainly it opens it up to praying about and for people that we don't even know. Uh, To further complicate things, uh, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, of course, tells us to pray for people who persecute us. So here we're not just praying for saints, we're praying for people who are oppressing saints. Um, So to pray for our enemies. uh, That lengthens the list a little bit. Um, In the second chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy, to lengthen the list even further, uh, Paul says to offer prayers uh, for all men, making special note of those who are in authority, kings and those in authority over us. So the last gets even longer um, with this breadth of people to bring before the lord in our prayers we should not lack for material so we indeed do need all the day to pray for all these people um, and whether you do it at a specific structure like having uh, mondays be for missionaries or uh, tuesdays for be for the totally lost however you want to organize it that way or in mornings you pay pray for your family in the uh, evening time you pray for your church and you know, whatever system works for you uh, the main issue is that there's a lot of things to pray for. We should not sit down and say, I've got nothing to pray for. After two minutes, I'm done. Uh, Let's move on. I'm hungry. It's time for breakfast. Uh, There are a lot of things to pray for. And if we really think deeply and ask God to burden us for the things that, that are a burden on his heart, I think we'll have plenty to pray for. And however we go about it, uh, to remember that the overriding concern is for God's glory. When we think of, well, what should I pray for that person? How should I pray for this specific situation? To be thinking, what is God's interest here? My interest can be very narrow. You know, I want my car fixed. Well, is his interest that I would learn patience and perseverance through the car being broken. Who knows what it might be? Um, so when we ask ourselves, should we pray for uh, unsaved uh, relatives or coworkers to be converted, you know, it can be kind of uncomfortable praying for them to t- radically shift their whole life. Well, definitely, because God in His Scriptures has revealed that He desires that all the unsaved would be saved. So we're praying in accordance with God's will when we pray for somebody's life to be totally upturned, for them to get saved and their ways to be changed. Uh, should we pray for our children to walk more closely with the Lord, or should we just you know, sort of let that happen as it may? Well, certainly we should pray for that. Uh, God's will is that His children be sanctified. We can add that. And uh, as a specific how to pray, uh, should as I mentioned the car, should we pray for our car to be fixed when it's broken? Um, surely, because he gives us all things. It's not just spiritual blessings, but it's material things as well. It's a very material thing. It means for our transportation and going about our daily lives. And uh, as it says here in this verse, he gives us good things. He doesn't give us a, a broken car necessarily, the, the stone instead of the fish or the, the scorpion instead of the egg. He gives us the good things, the things that we need. And so he wants us to be blessed with those things. And uh, finally, should we pray that rebels against God, uh, whether it be in power, uh, authority over us or in the media, whatever it might be, that they would be judged if they don't repent? Is that kind of a mean thing to pray? Uh, yes, it is okay to pray for. David, and you all are familiar uh, with Pastor Kaiser's teaching on imprecatory Psalms, David repeatedly prayed that his enemies uh, who were the enemies of God, not just David's enemies. That would be a pretty vain thing for, God, for David to pray against his own human enemies. He prayed for people who were enemies of God, that they would be judged. And that was for the whole purpose, was that God's name would be vindicated, that God would be seen as right in the eyes of his oppressors. So it's always God's glory that we're looking for, not our own small concerns. And that will really help us clarify the what to pray for all these people. Uh, we pray against uh, those who hate God and, and the trouble in this world, not that we would be proved right for our own pride, for our own comfort, but for God's glory, in the midst of all these situations. The last thing there for our acrostic of prayer has to do with uh, the attitude of prayer, and then there's two parts: that uh, who God is and who we are when we're the person coming before Him in prayer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer in this section, is spelled out in verses two to four, says that we should address Him with honor. Hallowed be Your name. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, at my Hebrew class we were learning the word Ab, which means uh, father in Hebrew. And I was thinking, oh, it's like Abba in the New Testament. So I said to our professor, is that like Abba? And he said, well, actually, Abba is Aramaic. The uh at the end is the article the. So it means the father, whereas Hebrew puts the article at the beginning. Um, Immediately, one of my other students said, "Uh, it's sort of like daddy, right? And the look on our professor's face was like, How could you say that? It's just a kind of disrespect. It would be okay for us uh, humans to call our father daddy. That's fine. It's American terminology. That's good. But to call the God of the universe by such a casual name, his expression was a little more than not a good idea. But he very graciously said, "Um, not quite. Uh, Ask me later. So he he was very nice about it. But I could tell he was a bit pained by uh, the thought that God was sort of daddy as if he was a mere man. Uh, He is the God of the universe. So when thinking about Abba, we need to keep that in mind. Um, (laughs) And yet, as a gracious and loving father, he wants us to come to him. Uh, In my teaching on adoption from Romans 8, I hope you remember that uh, we are drawn into that very close fellowship uh, with God. Jesus is our brother, and and all of us out here are brothers and sisters. There's that family tie that God has established in restoring that relationship. So we should be comfortable with boldness to come before him in prayer. Uh, And that relates then, uh, skipped ahead, to who we are. Keeping in mind who God is, who we're coming before in these prayers, we then look at ourselves. And I think there's two uh, excesses we can go to. Uh, one is to be a little cocky, arrogant, uh, approaching them uh, God casually, uh, not thinking of uh, His graciousness. And what that is really saying is that, oh, His grace wasn't necessary to make me good enough to come before Him. I mean, that's not just a mistake. That's a heresy. Everything good we have, everything good about who we are, comes from the loving hand of God. So if we come to Him a bit too boldly and cavalierly, apart from his grace, thinking, oh, I'm not that bad. Of course, God would want to listen to me. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty important. That is not how God wants to be approached, because that's a mistaken view of who we are. So we must keep in mind who we were initially. Uh, God despises the prayers of the wicked. We were totally lost. We did not seek after him. All of those things show that God was displeased with us, and it took his work in us to make us able to speak with him rightly. So uh, that established we can be humble before him. But having been saved and having been given all these blessings, having been seated in the heavenlies with all these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, we have that boldness uh, that Paul speaks of, coming with boldness and confidence before his throne. So if that's the case, that we're so good because of these gifts that he's given us, if we come before God, oh, oh, you know, Woe is me, and I'm a horrible person. That's doing dishonor to uh, those good gifts we've given. So you can see how it can go either way. You can come to God really contritely for a bad reason. You can come to him really boldly for a bad reason. You can come to him boldly for a good reason, and you can come to him contritely for a good reason. So we must practice uh, both doing those rightly. Um, it's a bit as if, say, our father gave us... You know, a beat up vehicle, you know, our first car when we're 16, and it's some car that uh, we're kind of embarrassed by, but it's totally refurbished. And so we're telling our friends, yeah, it's kind of a beater. I know it looks pretty dorky. Our father would say, I put a new engine in it. Those are new tires. I just, you know, got it aligned. What are you complaining about? So if we were to downplay this car that he put great love in restoring, that is just sort of condescending to the good work he has done. Instead, we should be like, well, you know, it's not perfect yet, but it's got all these great things, and I'm getting a paint job next week, and the AC is going to be fixed next summer, you know, all these things. It's improving, and that's how the Christian life is, is a life of progress. Uh, We're not perfect at the beginning, and we won't be until we're glorified in heaven. But to speak too little of God's grace is to insult that very grace. Uh, So we need to be uh, honest with ourselves. We need to be continually repentant. I mentioned earlier that even for the saved person, uh, it's not that, oh, yeah, I repented that that day back December 18th of uh, 1999. I'm good to go. God loves me forever. No, we can have uh, impediments to our communication with God. Uh, God resists the proud, whether that's a super proud person who won't submit to him at all, or it's a Christian who is putting up roadblocks and parsing off areas of his life. So God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So we need to be humble and uh, continually humble before him. Um, also says in First Peter that a husband, and this is a uh, Christian husband's, I believe, prayers can be hindered uh, if he's not treating his wife properly. Uh, so you're thinking, what's the connection between how I treat my wife and how God listens to my prayers? Well, apparently there is a connection. Um, in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 27, it speaks of anger giving place to the devil. And again, this is Christian people that Paul is addressing. So just by having unresolved or unrighteous anger in our lives, we're giving a foothold to the devil, um, And we need to resolve those things because that should not be the case for the Christian. So it's not, again, that we walk away, oh, woe is me, I can never solve this. We solve it through repentance and through prayer that all is restored. We don't have to wander away without a solution. He's graciously provided that solution. Well, I think this all beautifully uh, comes together in the final verse, um, the final part of our passage, verse 13, where it speaks of the Spirit. How much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. I think quite often we don't know what to ask. We may think, okay, it's Monday. I need to pray for missionaries, and I know of a few, and I get this letter from Voice of the Martyrs, but I don't know what's happening in the Philippines today. That letter is a month old. The situation could have been resolved, and there's other things that have come up that I don't even know about because it's not off the printing press yet. Well, it's the Spirit that's... raises up before the Father these prayers that we can't even know about or utter within our hearts. So uh, that's a great aspect of humility to know that we can't know everything, we can't do everything, it's not our job to, but yet we have this gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift we didn't even ask for. Who sat down and said, God, please send me the Holy Spirit so I can be regenerate and then you'll like my prayers. No. Uh, the Holy Spirit was given to us without us asking. The ultimate good gift that the Father gave us came without us even asking, and later we can ask for these good things, and it's the Spirit that bestows them into our lives. So I hope you see this absolutely focal, this central uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit in our lives, because it is the Spirit who works in us to desire to obey uh, Scripture's commands, the ability to obey Scripture's commands. It's the spirit who makes us yearn to pray always to get out of bed on those mornings or to persist longer than five minutes when our stomach is growling and it is the spirit who lifts our prayers up to heaven uh, interceding for us when we don't know what to pray so our text says that the spirit is available for the asking and i ask you what more could we ask for or need because he is the beginning of the end and everything in between let us pray then great god the one who provides for us, who cares for us, who redeems us, Uh, to you be glory and honor forever. Uh, Right now, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, a status that is due only to your grace, but certainly not due to our merit. Lord, may we, your people, the ones called by your name, call on you with the great boldness that you speak of in scripture, with great frequency and thoroughness and perseverance, You delight in giving good things to your people, just like we fathers on earth delight in giving good things to our children. We need your gifts, and we need your blessings. Our individual lives, our families, our city, our nation, uh, countries abroad, they all need your gifts. And may your Holy Spirit stir us to ask you, and in asking, may we receive. Thank you, Father God, Uh, by the merit of Jesus Christ, I pray on behalf of your people. Amen.